Our passage today comes from Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtains in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtains in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps onto the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtain, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side, to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Well, I want to thank Amanda for taking up the challenge of that particular scripture reading this morning. That is a, that is a tough call, man. As Matt said last week, it is awesome to be back. Uh, it's really kind of cool to be here in the middle of July, which I've actually never been here, I think, in the middle of July. But I'm here on a weekend when Matt's here and Ryan's here. It's like we all came back just in town to see most everybody else leave. But... Um, But it's fun, and it's good to be here. Uh, One of the things that Dr. Warren Gage and I have done over the years, probably several years, seven, eight years now at least, is we've led tours to various places. Usually we go to Israel, and then sometimes we'll tag something onto Israel. So we've done Israel and Jordan. We've done Israel and Egypt. Uh, Dr. Gage took a group of people from Rio and went over to Greece and Turkey. So they've been biblical land kind of tours in the past. But recently, these past couple of weeks, we took a group of people, a group from Rio and some other people from outside of Rio who are really wonderful folks and just added so much to the team. It was great. And we toured parts of Germany, Austria, Slovakia, and Hungary, which was kind of a new experience. And it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. It was kind of a break, mostly mentally, more so, I think, probably than physically. Uh, It was very educational, so the tour guide that we had in Germany had a PhD in Reformation history, so he brought a lot of kind of Reformation stuff to the trip, which was good. But one of the things that we have learned as we've done all these different tours is that inevitably, you know, when you're traveling with ah, 25 to, let's say, 45 people, and it's usually a group somewhere in the middle, uh, probably about five of them are going to catch a cold somehow, some way. And it's true no matter what you try to do to minimize that. Like I, for example... You know, because I'm me, like I'm the guy that travels with like 14 packets of wet wipes, seriously. Like I get on the plane, you know, and everybody's filing past and they're trying to put their luggage away and I've got wet wipes out and I'm wiping down the armrests and I wipe down the headrests and I wipe down the tray. Got to get the seatbelt. That's probably the grossest part of the whole thing, isn't it? So you wipe that down. And then here's the part that everybody forgets until you get warm. 
that little air conditioning deal up there. So then you got to get another one out and wipe that down, right? Notwithstanding all of our precautions, you get a cold at some point. It's no big deal. It's like a minor inconvenience for the person who gets it. And one of the people who got a cold on our trip just for a couple of days was Debbie McMurtry. And Debbie and her husband Fred are members here at the church. Fred's one of our deacons. Uh, And I always knew that they were awesome people, but now that we've traveled together, they're like way awesome people. These guys bring the fun, and I loved, loved being together with them. But I felt terrible because poor Debbie got sick, and I mean, the other part of me is that I'm also a traveling pharmacy. So I kind of foresee almost every contingency, and then I bring some kind of pharmacological solution for that. So, you know, and I bring extra. So like if you have trouble sleeping, I have stuff for that. If you're anxious, I probably shouldn't give it to you, but I have stuff for that. (laughs) I mean, I'm just, you know, not lying. If you get some kind of foodborne illness, I have ciproflaxin, believe it or not. I usually, I usually have a Z-Pack. I still don't know why I did not have a Z-Pack on this particular trip, but I have all kinds of cold medications. And I knew that Debbie was looking for a particular kind. And so I texted Fred one night in a hotel. It's like, I don't know, 1040 or something in the evening. And I said, hey man, I have this cold medicine. Why don't you just come to my room and get it? He said, great, what room are you in? I said, well, I'm in room 503 which was actually not true. So I, I was not in room 503, but it was late and I was tired and I was in a hurry. And so I typed room 503 when in fact I was in room 530. So Fred and Debbie are on the same floor, the fifth floor of this hotel with me. And you know, it's late, he's already in his pajamas, you know, but he's on the same floor. So he goes over to room 503 to get the medication from me. And it's a nice hotel, like they have doorbells for all the different rooms. Weird, right? So anyway, he presses the doorbell, and he's standing there in his pajamas, wondering what in the heck has taken me so long. Like, you know, because he texted me, I'll be right there, you know. Meanwhile, I'm in room 530, wondering what in the heck has taken him so long, because he texted me, I'll be right there. So finally, the actual occupant of room 503, who has to get out of bed to do this, comes to the door, his hair's like, you know, going off here, you know, it's like dark, and he's in his bed clothes, and he sees Fred standing there in his pajamas, and I'm going to be as delicate as I can be with this, okay? Apparently, he assumed that Fred had come to offer to share the night with him, because <laughs> his eyes got real big, he didn't speak English, his eyes got real big, and he put his hands up, and he goes, no, 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 and he took the door and shut it in Fred's face. And then I got this text, 503, not you. (laughs) I'm like, oh, sorry, 530. And I've told him a dozen times that I did not do that to him on purpose. However, I would not undo it. It was marvelous. All right, so I tell you all of that. Uh, I mean, honestly, mostly because I just had to tell you that story. Like, I just, I've been thinking it's got to fit somewhere, you know. But, but it does fit, and here's how. It illustrates the point, and we've all experienced this in life, that things are not always the way that they appear. Would you agree with that? Okay, it's true with the Bible too at times. Here's what happens. I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Bible from the very beginning. I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to start there. Like I would encourage you to go to the New Testament, the part of the Bible that's written after the life of Jesus, and start with the fourth book, which is the gospel, the good news, of John or the book of John. 
But if you've ever done like the read through the Bible in a year plan or whatever, then you know what I'm talking about. You start at the very beginning and you start in the first chapter of Genesis and you start working your way through this amazing book called Genesis. And they're like incredible stories, man. And it's awesome and it's amazing and it's intriguing and it's, you know, kind of weird in spots, but whatever. But I mean, it's like it draws you in and you start thinking to yourself, if I had known the Bible was this awesome, I'd have started reading it earlier, right? And then you get to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, the one that we've been studying for months now. And it's much of the same thing. I mean, you get all the way to the 20th chapter, even the 10 commandments are enriching when you understand them. But so you're cruising through the Bible until you get to about Exodus 25 through 31. And then it's like you hit a tree because it's all of this tedious feeling, detail about the tabernacle and about the the garments that the priest wore in the tabernacle and about the furnishings of the tabernacle, about the system of taxation that they came up with to support the tabernacle. And if you're honest, then you will admit that what you do when you hit chapter 25, 26-ish, you start looking ahead because you're wondering, how long is this going to last? Don't you? And you want to know how much you're going to skip. Because here's what you assume that all that detail and that all that stuff about the tabernacle really has nothing to offer you. So I'm going to tell you what it offers you, and then you decide its value, okay? What does the tabernacle do? It shows you the way to God. I don't know, but that seems like it might be important. Shows me the way to God. Like, that might actually be relevant to my life. Like, you know what, that's pretty significant. The catch is in how. It does it by pointing you to the greater ministry of Jesus. Specifically as John in that fourth book of the New Testament that I call the gospel, the good news of John, portrays it. Because when you get into that book and you compare it with the tabernacle, one of the things you realize is, oh, good grief, John is patterning the ministry of Jesus or his presentation to us of the ministry of Jesus after the pattern of the tabernacle with the message being that just like the tabernacle was the way to God for Moses and the Israelites out there in the wilderness, Jesus Christ is the way to God for me and for you. And he's not hiding it from us. In fact, John opens his gospel by telling us this in verse 14, chapter 1. He says the word. It's a reference to Jesus, so let me rephrase it. Jesus, and who is Jesus? He is the invisible God entered into this world through a supernatural conception, taking upon himself flesh and blood. He is graciously coming to us in the most comprehensible form possible. One of us. Jesus, John says, became flesh, and what did he do? He dwelt. No, that's actually not what it says. I know that's what it reads, but the word is tabernacled. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us to show us the way to God. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at the tabernacle and all of its different furnishings, bit by bit by bit, and then I want to go to John's gospel, and then I want to go to look at the tabernacle, and then I want to go to John's gospel, and I want to show you how Jesus is our tabernacle, how he's the way to God for us, and not just how, but even why. So when we look at the tabernacle from the outside, for example, you see this particular image. Matt showed us this image last week. But when you look at it from the inside, or at least in terms of the way that it's laid out, you see the next image. 
Which means that when you come through the door, and don't forget this, there are three doors, and that's the first one, here's the second, and here's the third. When you come through the first door, you come, first of all, to what's called the high altar. Now, why is that? Because the issue between God and man, between God and me and God and you, is what the Bible calls sin. And I'm going to describe it differently, and I've described it this way a lot lately on purpose because I think it's helpful. Guys, God did not make you to waste your life. He gave you life to be lived for the single greatest cause, purpose, meaning, significant thing you could ever possibly do with your life. He made you to take your life and live it entirely for him. There's nothing greater. There's nothing higher. I don't think we should be irritated with him for that. It's like, my goodness, Lord, you made me to do that It's amazing, and yet it's also amazing how many ways that we have failed to do it. All of us. Me too. So what have we done? We've taken the lives that were made to be lived for God and that we owe to him by virtue of our creation, and we have lived them instead for ourselves and for other people and for other things and all kinds of stuff. And as a result of that, what have we done, practically speaking? We have robbed God of the life that we owed to him, thus creating a debt for us that we cannot pay. Now, why is that? Because you can't go back in time. Like, I can't rewind to college and go, man, I need to really rework this four-year span of my life. Like, whoo, we need to do some work here, Lord, so I'm just going to rewind the tape and, you know, get it right this time. doesn't work that way. And you can't work off, like, two minutes for each one. You know, it's like, I'm going to work twice as hard, and I'm going to give you two minutes for every minute, and two hours for every hour, and two days for every day, and try to pay off this back here. No, 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 that doesn't work either. We only live one moment at a time when we already owe him that one. So we're stuck. God came to his people, the Israelites, and said, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to start showing you the way to God. First thing you're going to encounter, a high altar. And here's how you're going to pay your debt. It's going to speak of my son who will make the payment when he comes. You're going to bring to the altar a perfect, innocent lamb. And you're going to allow that lamb to be utterly and wholly consumed in the place of the life that you're living that was to be utterly and wholly consumed for me. The lamb pays the debt and opens the way to God. Get the idea? So after telling us that Jesus is God who entered into humanity and tabernacled, very significant language among us, John then tells us 15 verses later in verse 29 of chapter 1 that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, what did he say? He said, behold, he said, look, the Lamb of God, there it is, who takes away the sin of the world, meaning of all the people in this world like me and I hope like you who realize, hey, you know what, I have a debt that I cannot possibly pay. Oh, and incidentally, Jesus is uniquely capable of paying the debt in a way that no one else is. Why? Because he is God-made man and so his life is worth what? It's infinitely valuable so he can pay for all of us. It's infinite. But why else? Because he alone is perfect. Perfect. He owes no debt, so he's free to pay ours. That's the idea. So then as you continue on into the tabernacle, after coming to the high altar, you come to the laver of cleansing. It was the place where Moses and Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's sons, the priests of Israel, would wash their hands and feet as they then prepared to do their ministry there in the tabernacle. But similarly, as you continue on into John's gospel, you find Jesus sitting in Samaria by a well, a place of water, 
And he's all by himself, and he looks over, and it's high noon, guys, and here comes a woman walking toward him. Okay, that's unusual in that day and age. Didn't happen. Guys, the women went to the well at the beginning of the day, or they went to the well at the end of the day. They didn't go out in high noon when it is like unbelievably hot, and they always went in packs. They went in droves. They went together. It was a big social event. But it was a big social event that was also all about safety. There's safety in numbers. When you traveled through the desert in the Middle East in those days, you didn't travel from point A to point B in a straight line. You went from well to well to well to well to well to well. You get the idea because otherwise you die without water and the bad guys need to drink too. So they're taking the same route. The women went out together, but not this woman. She went out at noon to avoid everybody else. She'd rather risk harm than face the people of her town because of the way that she's lived. You know, one of the most encouraging things about the Bible for me is the fact that it is full of stories of like massive, huge, you've got to be kidding me, wow, great big sinners. And, and the reason that that is the case is so that it can speak to great big sinners and offer hope. This woman comes out and meets Jesus who offers her living water a water that can cleanse her of all of the ways that she has sought to satisfy, not the thirst of her body, but the thirst of her soul, and can cleanse you. And a water that satisfies, a water that lasts. Listen to what he says, John four fourteen. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again for the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of well, water welling up to eternal life, which is an amazing sounding statement. But, you know, like if I quizzed you right now and said, okay, but what does it mean? You know, I think a lot of us would be going, I don't know, it just sounds really cool. What does it mean? Because it's really instructive. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, the thirst that is driving you through life is not a thirst for physical water. The thirst that is driving you through life, when you get right down underneath all of its layers, is a thirst for God. For it is a thirst for that which only God can give. That's it. And you're trying to find it over here in this well and in this well and in this kind of water and in this over here and in this over there. And it's all designed, incidentally, by God to leave us thirsty until we satisfy our thirst in him. I think Matt quoted Augustine last week. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. That's it. It's remarkable. And then, of course, as you travel further into the tabernacle, you now enter through the second door. And immediately on your right, you find the table of showbread, this table on which 12 loaves of bread were placed representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which represented all of God's people in that particular day. And it represented as well the fact that God will not only satisfy your thirst, but your hunger, and not just your physical hunger. You know, when Jesus comes to us and he teaches us to pray, um, give us this day our daily bread, it doesn't mean just give us this day the daily food that we need to eat. Now, that's important and significant, but that's not something particularly as Americans that most of us at least are all that concerned about. What he's teaching us to pray is, give us this day, Lord, that which we need from you, from your word, from your spirit, from your people. We are inadequate, but you are altogether adequate. So give us our daily bread. Correspondingly, in the Gospel of John, 
In John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people, and, I'm, I'm, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but back in that day, they only counted the men. So it doesn't include all the women and children who were also there. It's probably closer to 20,000 people. And then at the end of that miraculous feeding where he multiplies all the bread, if you will, he tells all of his disciples, hey guys, get a basket, all 12 of you, and go gather up everything that's left over, all of the bread. And they bring back to him 12 baskets of bread. See the corollary? It's remarkable. And then Jesus said to them and us in John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, listen, there's a hunger and thirst that cannot be satisfied anywhere else. And I'm not hiding from you where it's satisfied. Come to me and be satisfied. So you go back to the tabernacle on your left in the holy place is the seven-branched lampstand representing the idea that God is a light to his people. And I, I would ask you, what does light do? And I think maybe this would be helpful. I want you to imagine that you just walked into a room and it has no windows, okay? It's just walls and you shut the door and the door is like perfectly sealed, allowing no light to come in. And then there's just like a, I don't know, like a light bulb screwed into the ceiling or whatever, a little switch by the door. It sounds like an interrogation room or something, but you get the idea? So now you're nervous. And you shut the light off. What can you see? Nothing hand in front of your face, turn the light back on. What can you see? Everything. What does light do? It brings sight, does it not? So after proclaiming himself to be the light of the world in John 8, in John chapter 9, we find the story in which Jesus heals this man who was born blind. He has spent his entire life in utter darkness and seven times once for each of the candles on the lampstand. It's specifically noted in that story that Jesus opened his eyes, he opened his eyes, he opened his eyes, he opened his eyes, he opened his eyes. You get the idea? He gave him sight. And he gives us sight. Like sight about what? Like, I mean, what am I going to look at? He reveals God to us as opposed to who, for who God really is, as opposed to who we caricature him into being. As opposed to who we've maybe been told by somebody that he is. Who we assume that he is. He reveals us to ourselves, and that's an educational experience. It's very humbling, actually, but he relieves that stress through Jesus. He lights up the Son of Man as the Lamb of God who alone can take away our sin. His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path by His Spirit, and through His Word, He leads and guides us through life. He grows us, constructs us after the image of Jesus. Get the idea? So then as you move further into the tabernacle, you come to the altar of incense, which is right here. This is the place where the high priest of Israel would literally burn incense on this altar, and incense creates a smoke that smells hopefully good and doesn't give a headache. We'll see. And it rises up because it's smoke and it goes up toward heaven. It represents the prayers of the high priest of Israel on behalf of the people of Israel. But in John chapter 17, as you just continue moving through his gospel, you find Jesus praying what has become known as his high priestly prayer, and incidentally in which he prays for me and for you. Now, he doesn't do it by name, but he might as well in John 17 verse 20 as a part of his prayer, he says, I do not ask all of these things that I've been praying about for these who are here with me in this moment only is the idea, 
But I ask all of this also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, how do we know about Christ? It's through the recorded word of these guys. Which brings us to the third and to the final door in the tabernacle, which takes you into the Holy of Holies, also known as the most holy place, and in which you find uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's throne here on earth. And the Ark of the Covenant, and there's kind of an image of it, uh, was a big gold box, if you will, and it had a broad, flat lid, and on its lid there was an angel, one at the head of the box, one at the foot of the box, and the angels are facing each other, as you can see in the picture, and their wings are stretched out, and they're gazing in wonder at the seat of the throne of God, which is referred to as the mercy seat. Why? Because exactly once a year, and one, only once a year, the high priest of Israel would come into the Holy of Holies, and he would come in with the blood of a spotless, innocent lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. What is he saying? He's saying, God, your people whom I represent are guilty. We have not lived rightly for you. We have a debt to pay except the blood of the lamb as our payment. You get toward the end of the gospel of John, the second to the last chapter, John 20. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus, God made man who has tabernacled among us, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has been sacrificed willingly on a cross. His body has been removed from the cross. He's been embalmed after the fashion of that day, which included like linen garments, wrappings, placed into a tomb, which was really just a cave hewn out of solid rock on a stone slab, a broad, flat stone slab. A stone was rolled in front of the mouth of the cave, and he was left there for three days. But on the morning of the third day, as he said that he would, and again, Jesus is God. So when you understand that, all of a sudden, everything about his life starts making sense. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he left the tomb empty with the exception of the grave clothes. Those he left in the middle of the slab. And Mary Magdalene, one of his followers, came to the tomb confused. She didn't know what was going on or where his body had gone. And I want you to think about and imagine... What she saw, as John describes it, but imagine it in light of that. It says in John 20, verse 11, that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb because all she knew at this point was that his body was missing and she was concerned. And it says that as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting on the stone slab where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, both of whom no doubt were facing each other, staring in wonder at the blood on the clothes that had been willingly shed for me and you. It's the Ark of the Covenant, and incidentally, it takes the foulest of places, a grave, and it transforms it into the Holy of Holies. It's a remarkable thought. And so things are not always the way that they appear. You know, you come to the tabernacle and it's like, oh my goodness, how many more pages of this do I have to endure? And I get it. It takes some outside stuff to help you understand it. But it shows you the way to God by pointing to the ministry of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came into the world to take away your sin, to offer you living water that cleanses your past, present, and future irrespective of what it contains to give you light and life and to take the foulest, deadest, stinkiest parts of my life and yours and to make even them holy. That is the power of the blood of Jesus and of the gospel. All right, last slide. 
I told you to watch the doors. So some scholars believe that these doors had names. The first was named the way, the second was named the truth, and the third was named the life. Why does that matter? Because Jesus presents himself in John 14, 14, 6 to humanity. And what does he say? He says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For how could we? There's no one else whose life is valuable enough to pay the penalty for all of us. And there's no one else who is perfect and owes no debt and therefore is free to pay mine and yours. So what's the bottom line of all of this? It is that if you are not a believer in Jesus, that's what Christ offers to you. It's yours for free. Just come and receive. And it's also if you've wandered away from Jesus. You know, you you started there, but you're off drinking other water and eating other bread. It's like drinking sand. He's calling you back through the beauty of his love. And he's saying, come back to me and find the water and the, and the bread that actually satisfies. All right? So chew on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for its richness. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and for the love that is on display and the gospel that is ours by your goodness and grace. And so then I pray that your spirit would work a work of faith in our hearts, Lord, that we might love you well, that we might come to you recognizing this day that we have a debt that we cannot pay, but that we can have paid for us through the one who has already done all the work necessary to do exactly that. Give us faith in Christ and let us be more enamored with him than with anything or anyone else. Let us find our satisfaction in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.